So, Isaiah 43, reading from verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am a God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? And then John, in the New Testament, John 14, reading from verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, Christianity and other religions aren't they all the same? That's a very good question, and it's one we need to treat sensitively because people live very often by the religions that they profess. And you might well get the impression that all religions are the same from religious studies at school or from um, some of the politicians who talk about the faith community as though they were all are very much the same. And often the politicians commend the um, contribution made by the faith community to society. And I think that the religions um, really can combine and do combine to meet human need. Once I had the privilege of attending a remarkable meeting in Her Majesty's Treasury. It was um, a day working on a plan to bring new hope to the poorest of the world's poor. And alongside the President of the World Bank and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the heads of Oxfam and Tear Fund, yes, and Bob Geldof and Bono, um, there were the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Chief Rabbi, uh, the head of the Muslim Council of Great Britain, the uh, um, head of the Sikh and Hindu faiths, and all were united in the determination to eradicate extreme poverty and to um, remit crippling debt and to bring about more justice in trade. So in projects like that, 
you can find most of the world's faiths pulling together, and that's something to be very thankful for. But does that mean that all religions are the same? It's an attractive idea, isn't it? Because um, we look and see at the devastation that religious wars and persecution have caused worldwide and still do cause. Um, Why shouldn't uh, the Muslims and the Christians, the Hindus and the Buddhists all agree to worshipping the same God in different ways and leave it at that? After all, that's the common sense view. It's also the tolerant view. And we value tolerance almost above any, any other virtue nowadays. But attractive though it is, it's not going to wash. Let me give you two reasons among many. First, look at the worshippers. They certainly don't think that all religions are basically the same. Many of the divisions in the world are due to the clash of religious beliefs. And some are so dogmatic about their views that they kill people of other faiths. In the Quran, Surah 9, 5, you will read, fight and slay the unbelievers wherever you find them. And this is happening on a widespread scale today. It's only the academics in their studies who believe that all religions are the same. Try telling that to Muslims and Hindus in Kashmir or in Pakistan. But if you do, watch out for your life. The real worshippers know that it's not true that all religions are the same. Or you could look at the beliefs that these faiths have. No way can they be seen to be the same. Classical Buddhism, for example, doesn't believe in God. Islam passionately does. In Hinduism, there are many gods, but behind them there is an impersonal monad that cares nothing for us. While Christianity claims there is one God who is personal and who loves us like crazy. Christianity teaches that God both forgives and offers supernatural aid. Hinduism and Buddhism say there is no supernatural aid available and there is no forgiveness. Only ruthless karma. You sin, you pay. The goal of existence in Islam is a sensual paradise. In Hinduism and Buddhism, it is the extinction of personal life uh, after many reincarnations. And in Christianity, it is to know God and to enjoy him forever. There is no way these can all be called the same. Well, in that case, where can we turn in this jungle of conflicting beliefs? I suppose we could follow the new atheists and say, a plague on all your houses. But that would fly in the face of at least 95% of the world's population. And the philosopher Immanuel Kant's conviction that the starry heavens above and the moral law within are two very powerful pointers to the existence and nature of God. It would also involve locking horns with the greatest person this world has ever seen. Building on the faith of Isaiah that we had read to us just now, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord and 
beside me there is no Savior. Building on that, Jesus uh, went on to claim these astonishing words, I am the way, not I show you the way, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to God as Father except through me. And the first Christians believed that implicitly, and yet they were surrounded by the worship of multiple gods. And yet, you find them being brought up before the uh, leaders of their country and boldly looking them in the eye and saying, there is salvation in none other, for there is no other name given unto men under heaven whereby we can be saved. How come they were so confident that Jesus provided a highway to God and that he could rescue us from our innate self-centeredness? Well, I suggest that there were four reasons that persuaded them, and I still find them persuasive today. You must make your own judgment. But here is the first reason. They believed that nobody else even claimed to bring God onto the stage of human history. Remember, Jews were passionate monotheists. They would allow no picture of God, no representation of him of any sort. And yet, vast numbers of them came to believe that Jesus of Nazareth had brought God in terms we could really understand, the terms of a human life, onto the stage of human history. This is some of the things they said. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, no one has ever seen God. The only Son, himself God, has made him known. They were convinced that unlike any other religious leader, by him, and I quote, all things in heaven and earth were created. He is the origin and the goal of the universe. That is breathtaking stuff. And yet it reflects the claim of Jesus himself. Of course, he didn't go around saying, uh, I am divine. But he did accept worship. He did declare sins forgiven. He did claim to be the final judge of all mankind at the end of history. And as we have read just now, he did claim to be the way to the heavenly Father, the true way, the living way. And he backed up those staggering claims by, I reckon, seven things. You've got his spotless life. Nobody can make any mud stick on that. You have got the fulfillment of scores of prophecies uttered centuries beforehand. You have got the most um, famous death uh, in history, You've got these astounding claims that I have mentioned. You've got miraculous powers, and you have got the awesome resurrection that launched the whole Christian movement. No other religious move, uh, leader in the world is in the same league. The um, once atheist professor turned Christian, C.S. Lewis, put it in his own uh, <laughs> remarkable way. He said, there is no halfway house. There is no parallel in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would first have rent his clothes and then cut off your head. 
Jesus is unique among religious leaders of the world because he alone shows in his own person what God is like. That's the first thing that convinced the followers of this remarkable carpenter teacher from Nazareth. The second thing was this, that nobody else dealt radically with human wickedness. How do the great religions of the world account for and try to provide a counterweight to all the evil and suffering and muck that there is all over the place? The brutality, the lust, the greed, the war, the lies, the corruption, the rape, and all that. Well, what do the world's religions offer to deal with that stuff? Well, Confucianism, like modern humanism, brushes it aside. Confucianism concentrates on Chun Tzu, man at his best. It has nothing to offer to man at his worst. Buddhism and Hinduism have only the cold doctrine of karma to offer us. Either in this life or in a subsequent one, we pay for our misdeeds and we pay to the uttermost farthing. Islam is more realistic. Sin has to be punished, and there's a lot about hell in the, in the Quran, to which all non-Muslims are consigned, and many Muslims too. Allah will weigh their good deeds against their bad deeds on Judgment Day, and they may or may not find mercy. For although Allah is merciful, he is inscrutable and unpredictable. Allah punishes whom he pleases and grants mercy to whom he pleases. The Quran 23, 102. I want to submit to you that the Christian answer is more profound than any of these others. It presents us with a God who is utterly upright and opposed to evil in every form. He must repudiate it. He must judge it. But he loves us rebellious creatures. He loves us so much that he came among us in the person of Jesus, who embodied Confucius's man at his best, and at the same time showed what divinity is like. He was the man who was God. And the heart of the Christian good news is that on the cross, Jesus gladly accepted God's judgment against the evil in this world, the whole foul load of human wickedness. He carried the lot. He absorbed it as somebody put it in that video we saw just now. He paid the penalty for it himself. His friend Peter described it like this later on. Christ has once and for all suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. That's the unique thing he did. And because he's dealt with the muck in our lives, you and I can, with perfect justice, be accepted and forgiven and embraced by his arms of love. The Hindu doctrine of karma says, you sin, you pay. The cross of Christ shows God saying, you sin, I pay. And that is utterly unique. 
The third thing that persuaded these early followers of Jesus, and still does, is that nobody else amongst the great religious leaders of the world broke the barrier of death. What have the great religions got to say about any prospect of life after death? As we have seen, both Hinduism and Buddhism believe in an afterlife, but it is to be dreaded. Karma has the last word. Islam offers a sensual paradise for those who pass the test. And it is guaranteed to those who perish in jihad. But how can we be sure that the reward for blowing up a bus station of innocent people and blowing up yourself as well qualifies you for instance admission to paradise? We have to take Muhammad's word for it. Muhammad died at 62, and he did nothing to validate his teaching about life after death. He stayed very dead. But what a contrast to what Jesus did and what Jesus offers. As if dying for us was not enough, Jesus broke the power of the last and greatest enemy that we shall all face, death. It's not that he removed it, we've got to face it, but he drew its teeth, its poisonous teeth. He broke its back. He took the worst thing out of it. The resurrection of Jesus is one of the best attested facts in the whole of human history. And that evidence has never been rebutted. It will take your weight and what confidence that brings. It means that if he rose from the dead, he really is the way to God. He really can fulfill his promise to give eternal life to those who trust him. And that means a new dimension to life now, a new quality of life, and it means a future with him when we die. No other religious leader offers anything remotely comparable. No one else has risen from the dead. The bones of Buddha are distributed among many Asian um, monasteries. The bones of Muhammad lie in Medina. But the bones of Jesus Christ are nowhere to be found. As one early Christian put it, Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no further power over him. And that fact alone sets him utterly apart from all other great religious leaders that the world has ever seen. These were the things that persuaded the early Christians. They didn't slang other faiths. There are many good things in other faiths. But these are the things that make Jesus unique. Nobody else brought God onto the scene. Nobody else dealt with human wickedness. Nobody else smashed the power of death. And finally, nobody else offers to come and live in the lives of his followers. That's a, a, a rather difficult thing to take on board. But Jesus offers just that. He offers his unseen self, his Holy Spirit, to come into our hearts and lives so that a, a genuine Christian is not just, just what you see, but he's got Christ living inside him. And the New Testament is full of it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ in him, he doesn't belong to him. You have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to live in him. And that's the appeal of the New Testament to people then and to people now. Receive him, ask him to come and start living in your life if you have never done that. That's what a Christian is. It's not someone who thinks that he's better than other people. It's not even somebody struggling to be virtuous. But it's someone who has come to recognize that Jesus brings God into our world, that Jesus has provided cleansing from the dirt in our lives by what he underwent at Calvary, that Jesus, through his resurrection, has broken open the door to life at its best, which had been locked since the death of the first man. And in glad response to all this, the Christian is someone who would welcome Jesus Christ to come and share life with him. And in the words of the Christmas carol, it's someone who has prayed something like this. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for you. Now, those are four topics for discussion in our groups now. And Michael, I'm going to ask you to come and give us a final word, give us a thought to take away with us, if you would be so kind. Okay, here goes. Let me summarize as we leave. Religions are like ladders that we set up to climb to God. But unfortunately, they don't reach for two reasons. One is that God is infinite and we are very finite. And the other is that God is perfect and we are not. And those are two very good reasons why none of the ladders reach. And anyhow, the rungs on those ladders are rotten and won't bear our weight. And so God kicks them aside and he comes down to find us in the person of Jesus Christ. He longs to have a relationship with us. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to restore relationship with him. But there's all that bad stuff in our lives that gets in the way. And incredibly, he loves us so much that he carried that foul load on the cross and it broke his heart. But death did not have the last word. He is risen, he is alive, and there are many people in this building tonight who could say, I know he's alive because he has transformed my own life. He offers us life in partnership with him that even physical death cannot end. It's very noticeable how Christians die very often in peace and confidence that, as the Apostle Paul puts it, they depart to be with Christ, which is far better.
And that risen Jesus confronts us tonight. Have you welcomed me into your life? That's, I guess, what he really wants to say to us. And if we have, as many people have here, make sure that you live it out because your life may be the only gospel that anyone will ever read. If you haven't yet invited the Holy Spirit of Christ to come into your life and start changing you, could you say yes to him tonight? Could you invite him to become the senior partner in your life? Many people find this very confusing and um, sort of gobbledygook. But actually, it's immensely simple. Uh, To get married, you only have to say two words, I will. That's a very simple beginning for a very complex and long-standing relationship. And it's like that in the Christian life. We only have to say yes to the great lover to start a relationship with him which going to need developing uh, over the years. He is only a prayer away. And that prayer could have just three simple words in it, three of the earliest words we ever learned to say, sorry, thank you, and please. Sorry, Lord, that I've kept you at arm's length for so long. Sorry for the mess in my life. Thank you so much for coming for me, for dying for me, for being alive and willing to come and start changing me. Please come into my very life tonight and never leave me. And I offer myself to you in your service. Let it be a partnership with you as the senior partner. Sorry, thank you, and please.